When I first came to this community, to this church, to this school years and years and years ago as an undergraduate student, I know you'd see me that way. Um, I was coming from a very rebellious period of my life. Um, I won't go into too many details, but my life had spiraled down in a lot of self-destructive patterns. It started with vandalism and petty theft, but uh, grew more and more out of control until the sins I was committing were hurting people in very direct ways, uh, causing consequences that still endure, humiliating my family. Uh, by the end, it left me in a place where I really didn't care, truly didn't care whether I lived or died. It was two weeks before I came to Indiana Wesleyan University and this became my home church that I said to the Lord something like this, I'm not even sure you're there, <laughs> but my life's a trash heap and I don't want it anymore. So if you are there and you want it, it's yours. You know, I don't think we have to come to the Lord with any sort of pureness of heart for him to accept us. Whoever gets converted the right way. <laughs> Maybe nobody. I mean, the prodigal son came back just because he was hungry. <laughs> he was just hungry. Wrapped up in a robe. God in his mercy heard that prayer and this community and the people surrounding me had a different spirit about them, a different way of seeing God, a different way of living in the world. And slowly over time, as I separated out those who were really pursuing that and those who weren't, and it had a really radical transformation here. It took about a year and a half for that wild bronco, bronco in me to run out of steam, but somewhere in there, I didn't even recognize myself as myself anymore. I remember going back home two years in or so and wanted to have dinner at a favorite place with a friend of mine. He was the one who used to invite me to church and invite me to youth group. He was trying to pull me in during that rebellious season. I wanted to go out to dinner with him and on the way to dinner, I started sharing all this good stuff. I was so excited about what God was doing in my life and how thrilled I was. I thought, here's the person who needs to hear this. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for wanting to pull me in. I didn't listen, but... I got halfway into it and he cut me off and said, Dave, 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 let's not take all this stuff too seriously, huh? It was a shock to me. Let's not take all this stuff too seriously, huh? It, it shook me. It took me a long time to process and to compute, you know, you're in or you're out, right? You know, you're in the game, you're out of the game, right? When I think about Amaziah and try to think of someone in my life who at least initially reminds me of him, that's the guy. He wasn't a king. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't wealthy. That's not why I think of him. He was just a really average Joe, still is really an average Joe. His name's Joe. <laughs> He reminds me of Amaziah because of how mixed and confusing he is to me. Have you ever heard much about Amaziah? Hey, when you, you read the picture Bible to your kids at night or give them a picture Bible, just, you don't see Amaziah in there. 
mean, there's, there's a lot of reason. I mean, he's not good enough to be a hero. He's not bad enough to be a villain. And in a child's flat moral world, in their early moral development, that's really confusing. And there's no, there's no transition. There's no real conversion. He's not like Zacchaeus, you know. We have a song about Zacchaeus. There's no, no song about Amaziah. And what would we sing? Amaziah was a mediocre king, you know. <laughs> mediocre king was he. And he stayed that way forever. How does that go, you know. And he died that way. And we don't sing that. So you've probably not ever studied his life. But there's something that jumps off the page for me when I read Amaziah's story. A few weeks back when I first started to choose this passage and decide this was the one to preach today, I reached out to one of my friends, my dear friends, who's a preaching partner. I'm always writing sermons with people, you know. And uh, we're talking to him about this passage, and he said, well, what's sort of the, one of the, some of the core things about it? And I read this one part of 2 Chronicles 25 that we just heard. I said, well, here's the key sentence. This is what jumps off the page. Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not with his whole heart. And my friend on the other end of the phone said, wow, that's chilling. What a great way to say it. That's chilling. That we could do externally many of the things that are right in the eyes of God, but not with our whole heart. And that lack of having a whole heart could slowly unfold in our lives in ways that eventually, you don't see it coming at first, eventually end up destroying us. That's chilling. The disease for Amaziah is not a mystery. Amaziah was part-hearted. It's clear in the text. It says it right there in one of the first paragraphs in 2 Chronicles 25. Amaziah was not wholehearted for God. He was part-hearted. That's not the question. The question is why? How did he get that way? How did he stay that way? And was there a cure? Did he miss it? Was there hope? Was there good news for Amaziah? As I was reading through this text over and over again the last few weeks, four areas of Amaziah's heart started to emerge. They started in multiple little scattered details, and I started gathering them together, and they started to coalesce into four zones of his life where his heart was revealed. So if you'll forgive the cheesiness of it, I'm going to use the four chambers of the heart sort of to illustrate. It's just a metaphor. I know that our spiritual heart is not the physical heart, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but four-chambered heart, think of that as the metaphor. The first chamber of Amaziah's heart that's revealed to me is his way of following and relating to human models. He has a particular way of relating to the key human model in his life, that shows his part-heartedness. In 2 Kings chapter 14, that's the parallel account. In the Old Testament, it's like the Gospels, you know, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, two different versions of the same stories, two different ways of telling it, two different writers, same events, same history. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 3, we're told that Amaziah does not do as his great-great-great-great-grandfather David did, but followed his father Joash in every way. Joash is the king right before this chapter in 2 Chronicles. 
I understand why. Amaziah becomes king when he's 25. He's young. And he becomes king when his father dies. If he'd had a rebellious period, I imagine Amaziah probably did, he was probably out of it by then. This is the time when his father is coming to him and saying, look, Amaziah, someday this kingdom is yours. Someday soon you're going to take over. You're going to have to be king. I mean, it's not in the text, but I imagine maybe even Joash bringing some of those gathered parts of Proverbs that were used as training tools of the king, the, the Proverbs that Solomon and his, his helpers had gathered, and handing them to Amaziah and said, read these, memorize these, let's talk about these. Giving him principles of how to lead the kingdom. And then one day he says, Amaziah, I'm going on a trip, got to do some things, got to take care of people, kill some people, be back soon. When I come back, we'll talk about this. But when he comes back, he comes back wounded. He's taken right to his bed. Amaziah doesn't get to talk to them to him. And then very soon after, somebody rushes into Amaziah's room, maybe the people who had been guarding him for some time, and some other royal guards rush in. All of a sudden, he's surrounded. People are scared. People are afraid. There's chaos everywhere. They're grabbing him and shoving him out of the room. Other officials are following him. He's out in the public square. Oil's poured over his head, and he's anointed king of Israel. I'm king of Judah, sorry. King of Judah, right then. And he finds out his father's been murdered in his own bed by people whose names he knew. The most powerful figure in his life, the person he looked up to, the one he was supposed to be like dies when he was 25. Have you heard that old phrase? You say this at funerals often when you come into an awkward one. Don't speak ill of the dead. <laughs> You're not sure you like the person, but you come into the funeral and you try to find every good thing you can say, right? Nobody's speaking ill of Joash anymore. He's dead. And for Amaziah, his mentor, his father, his model is taken from him early. I imagine he started to idealize him. Iron out the wrinkles subconsciously in his mind, smooth them away. Whatever reason, Amaziah follows his father's model completely. Listen, when we follow human models completely, we cannot follow God wholeheartedly, period. When we follow a human model completely, we cannot follow God wholeheartedly, period. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a human model anywhere for which that verse does not apply. But sometimes we look up to someone and no matter how righteous they are, no matter how holy they are, they have eccentricities, they have character flaws, they have failings, they have weaknesses. But we look up to them so much that subconsciously or consciously we start to copy even the bad parts of who they are. Have you ever caught yourself doing this? You don't just pick up what's good about them. You pick up their cynicism. You pick up their inappropriate jokes. You pick up the subtle forms of prejudice that are sitting under the surface. You pick up their aggressive behavior, the loss of their temper. 
you pick up what's bad along with what is good. And when that happens, a part-heartedness starts to form in you. He follows his father in every way, not just in how he relates interpersonally, but how he relates to God spiritually. Second Kings goes on to tell us, and it's in this passage as well, if you read right before Second Chronicles 25, that the high places in Judah are not removed. The Asherah pole is not knocked down. Hey, what does that mean? <laughs> so there's some, you know, hills that he didn't level. What does that mean, right? What's the pole? Is this like the maypole dancing around? What's a, what is that? Uh, so in Judah in this time, there were hills that were simply in that world in that time seen as places that you could connect with the divine, the spiritual world more easily. Every culture around them did this. And on these hills, they would form places of worship. If you're over here in this side of the scale of how you're related to high places, not over there. If you were over here, you were just worshiping Yahweh the way you wanted with a local flair outside of the rules of the people who are overseeing this outside of the guidance of the temple and maybe most importantly, outside of any reading of the texts of Holy Scripture. No rigidity, no rules, no boundaries. So slowly over time, people who started here began to shift and they not only worshiped God differently, they began to believe about God differently. And they thought, well, I don't like that about God. I like this about God and began to shape God in the image of what they wanted God to be until after they'd gotten rid of lots of stuff they didn't like, they started looking around at the religions around them and thinking, well, our God's kind of like that God. That works too. That's not much different than this over here. That works too. Until you get all the way over here where Baal is worshiped and Asherah is worshiped and all kinds of immoral practices that I can't talk about, they're beyond PG-13, happened in high places. Call it religious freedom. And Amaziah does not remove it. He participates in it. That's something his father did too, but it leads me to the second chamber of his heart, the way he relates to public approval. There's lots of reasons why he might have left these high places and poles there. One reason has to be public approval. Imagine these people got used to high places, hills, places of worship, local places where they could gather and worship God any way they wanted, and you come in and take it away from them. For them, at that point, it had become a right. Take it away from them, there will be a riot. Not only that, but since he's participated in it, you know, we start to like the things people that we like, like, so that we can be liked by them. Have you noticed that? Should I say it again? We start to like the things people we like, like, so that we can be liked by them. We do it sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but we start to like what they like because we like them and we want to be liked by them. If we are desperate for human approval, 
we cannot be fully devoted to divine approval. If we're desperate for human approval, we cannot be fully devoted to divine approval. Is affirmation nice? Yeah. Does it feel good? Yeah. Is encouragement fun? Yeah. But if we're desperate for it, if there's a void in us, if we desperately need it, if we got to have it, <laughs> we're part-hearted. No way around it. Amaziah has an army gathering across the border. He hears about it. He has good intel. He knows how large that army is. He numbers off the people in Judah and realizes he has 300,000 or so really good fighting men. But he knows the force on the other side is greater. The force on the other side is bigger. So he hires 100,000 mercenaries from Israel. Those are the 10 tribes in the north. If Amaziah's people are about here in the scale of how they use the high places, somewhere in here, Israel had fallen off the cliff over there. He hires 100,000 mercenaries from there. You can understand why. He's the king of God's people and someone is threatening God's people. What's a king's primary job? Keep his people safe. If there's an army gathering, it's his job to fight it. If there's war coming, he's got to figure out how to win. But he doesn't consult with God. Which leads me to the third chamber of the heart, divine blessing. He thinks he knows what God's will is. And so he devises the best plan that he can, hoping God will bless it. A few years back, I was sitting with a leader uh, who's part of this community. Uh, I was asking him for advice. And uh, he gave me a deep revelation about him, really. It was a beautiful confession fantastically vulnerable moment, raised my respect for him. I asked him for advice, and here's the advice he gave me. It was about him. He said, Dave, somewhere along the way, I don't know how it happened, I don't know when. I didn't do it on purpose, but slowly over time, something slipped in. I used to try to figure out what in the world is God's will and surrender to it and then get in it and ask God to bless me through it. Somewhere along the way, I started thinking I already knew what God wanted, making the best plans I could to accomplish it, and at the end, asking him to bless it. And it was destroying him. When we only ask God to bless what we've already decided to do, he is our servant, not our king. When we only ask God to bless that which we've already decided to do, he is the servant of our heart, not the king, not the Lord. We may think because we're asking for God to bless what we think God already wants, that we're in the right place, doing the right thing. 
but we're really turning God so subtly over time into our slave and angry when he doesn't do our bidding. Human models, public approval, divine blessing. The last one is painful correction. Amaziah is told to send those mercenaries home. What about all that silver? Maybe half a million dollars worth of silver I've paid out for those mercenaries, he says to the prophet of God. Ah, God can give you more than that. You know, that's how these impoverished, vow of poverty people act. You know, "Ah, what's a half a million dollars? You know, hey, I'm a king of the kingdom. I can't just throw half a million dollars away and not have the accountant know, not have the bookkeeper know, not have the advisors know, not have the people who wish I was out of power know. Did I mention my father was killed in his bed? What do you mean? Well, God can give you much more than that. Amaziah wrestles and submits to this, but not with his whole heart, you can tell. I think what Amaziah is doing is saying, well, if that's the condition for receiving the divine blessing, I've got to win or public approval is gone. And if that's the condition for God helping me to win, I got to win. If that's the condition, I'll do it. He sends the mercenaries home, goes into battle, they win. But he keeps the same pattern. He doesn't ask God what to do with 10,000 captives. He just throws them off a cliff. God didn't order that. The text calls it slaughter. Amaziah goes back home and finds out that those mercenaries he sent away raided his towns, killed 3,000 people, and took even more material goods out of his kingdom. Not only does he not have the silver, people are dead, money's gone. And his heart rages against God. Amaziah can't see that if he hadn't submitted to God's way in that moment, all of the army of Judah could have been slaughtered. Every town raised. The entire kingdom gone. God gives him the smallest of possible consequences. And he can't see that those mercenaries are the very ones he hired. Amaziah hired them, not God. Who are you blaming, Amaziah? Remember Proverbs 19.3? A man's own folly ruins his life, but his heart rages against the Lord. God is trying to give Amaziah painful correction that will start reversing the dominoes falling inside of his heart. His following of a human model that was terribly imperfect sets up a necrosis in the tissue of his spirit that leaps over into the way he relates to public approval that trickles down and infects how he thinks about God's blessing. And now the disease is full-blown in the last chamber of his heart. He will only receive good things from God, not bad. When we refuse the painful correction God offers. We reject the medicine that will heal our hearts. When we refuse the painful correction God offers, 
we reject the very medicine that could heal our hearts. Amaziah takes these mercenaries' acts as an act of war, doesn't consult God again, attacks Israel, he loses terribly, and eventually, sometime later, he suffers the fate of his father, murdered as he flees to Lachish. Amaziah was a part-hearted king. And eventually, 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 it destroyed him. Am I part-hearted? Am I part-hearted? Are there models that I've looked up to so completely that I've followed them and taken in not just their righteousness but their sin and I'm unaware? Am I so desperate for people's approval that I will do things that God does not approve in order to gain it? Do I want God to bless what I want to do? (laughs) Or am I willing to step into what God wants to do whether he blesses me or not? Will I only receive the good from God or when pain comes my way, when there's a cross in my path, when suffering is asked of me, is he still my Lord? Is he my Lord when I'm in power or when I'm removed? Is he my Lord when I am wealthy or when I am poor? Is he my Lord when I am healthy or when I am sick? Is he my Lord when I am surrounded by friends or when I am isolated and alone and there seems to be no one to turn to? Am I part-hearted? Am I clinging to things that I've grown to like that have an addictive hold on me because other people around me hold on to them? Am I part-hearted? I think you know my answer, don't you? Do you know yours? The reason Amaziah is part-hearted, and here's some of the good news. It's a deeper diagnosis, really, of the disease. The reason he's part-hearted is his heart has been wounded. His father was murdered in his bed when he's 25, and he's never healed. You can't love God with your whole heart if your heart is broken apart. Some of you, if you are sitting there thinking, boy, oh boy, I know I'm part-hearted. I bet if you let the Holy Spirit shine his spotlight in there and you listen long enough and you get good counsel or good people who can listen or good people who know you who will point it out, I bet you'll find a wound that's old and infected. And unless you let God start to heal that, (laughs) you'll stay part-hearted. But once we finally come to the gracious physician of our souls, once we finally submit and take the painful correction, swallow the bitter pill, the beautiful thing is when we become more and more wholehearted instead of more and more part-hearted, because there's only two directions, you're never static. Even if you became more and more wholehearted for 50 years and then turned the corner, you're going in a different direction. 
when we finally take the medicine and become more and more wholehearted in life, the good news is we can finally let our models fail. It's okay if they sin. We grieve it. We're sorrowful for them, but it doesn't crumble our faith. It doesn't shake us, and we don't follow them in it. Public approval is finally a side note. You get encouragement. You're like, oh, that was nice. Back to you, Lord. I like that. That was good. Does it still feel good? Yes. Do we still have some need for it? Yes. Are we desperate for it? No. We can finally let our lives unfold. We don't have to make our lives happen. We don't have to plot it out, our will, our way, our time. We don't have to master every little step of our lives. We don't have to live in anxiety about what's left. If I have to change jobs, okay, that might be hard. If I have to take a big cut in salary, that'll be hard. If I lose someone I love deeply, it will wreck me, but it won't wreck my faith. When we become wholehearted, truly wholehearted, we're finally free for the first time. Are you part-hearted? <laughs>